This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Ross Douthat is one of the most influential public intellectuals in America today. He is a columnist for the New York Times opinion page. Before that role, he was a senior editor for The Atlantic. He is the film critic for National Review, and he has appeared regularly on television and in other major media. He's the author of several books, including Bad Religion, How He Became a Nation of Heretics, and Privilege, Harvard, and the Education Ruling Class. His new book has just been released from Simon & Schuster. The title is To Change the Church, Pope Francis, and the Future of Catholicism. Ross Douthat, welcome to Thinking in Public. Ross, we've known for some time that you've been working on this book uh, on Pope Francis and on the papacy. Again, the title, To Change the Church, Pope Francis, and the Future of Catholicism. Anyone who's been reading your columns in the New York Times, uh, anyone who read Bad Religion, your earlier book, uh, in some ways knew to anticipate this book. But uh, how do you feel about the timing of this book now? Uh, The argument you're making in this book, falling into the discussion of 2018, did the book arrive just about where you thought the argument would arrive? In in a way. I mean, I started working on it, I guess, two years ago now when a lot of, you know, a lot of the debates that I'm writing about within Catholicism were burning particularly hot. Um, and in, in certain ways, I've been grateful, both as a Catholic, but also as a writer, that um, things haven't progressed that much further from that point, in a sense that, you know, the, the core of the story I tell is about sort of these particular changes that um, that Francis had sort of attempted to push through um, through a couple big meetings of these synods of bishops in, in Rome. Um, and at a certain point, he was effectively rebuffed in this very interesting way, um, which has, had essentially led to a kind of age of ambiguity in Catholic teaching that has, in effect, been sustained sort of across the writing of this book and into the, into the current moment, I think. It was very interesting that one of the illustrations you use uh, in your book about Pope Francis as, as kind of a catalyst for thinking about his own theological approach uh, was on the, the issue of hell and uh, particularly interviews that he had given on hell. And uh, just about exactly the time your book came out, another one of those interviews emerged in which the very same issues uh, yeah. were back and, in and the headlines. Is, and, and it was a perfect example of, of what I mean by sort of the rule of ambiguity, which is to say that, um, you know, the, if, if you're the Pope, the theory of the papacy is that the job of the Pope is, in effect, not to change, right? That, right. Uh, you know, the, the, the papacy, all its claims of authority, that it has, of course, defended against Protestants for low these 500 years, rest on the idea that the Pope has all of these, you know, awesome-seeming powers, and yet they are actually incredibly limited because the Pope, his authority depends on the idea that he's a custodian, not a change agent. And so the Pope cannot stand up and say, um, you know, that he's entertaining a different hypothesis about hell than the official teaching of the Church. But, and, so, and Francis is well aware of that, uh, but what he, what he has done 
several times now around that particular issue is he gives these interviews to an Italian journalist who is in his 90s, who is a secular atheist left-wing journalist with whom the Pope is friendly. And then the interviewer, whose name is Eugenio Scalfari, publishes these interviews, and the Vatican essentially washes its hands of them and says, well, these are reconstructions, he doesn't take notes, there's no transcript, and you can't take this as sort of what the Pope is literally saying. And in these interviews, Scalfari quotes Francis as entertaining various theological hypotheses that sort of skirt the bounds of orthodoxy, but in particular, in this case, entertaining annihilationism, right? The the view that maybe the souls of the damned um, are destroyed at the last judgment instead of remaining in some, you know, some, some version of, of eternal punishment. And this is sort of characteristic of the Francis method. He wants to, you know, he, he's, he's smart enough. He's not, it it sort of underestimates him wildly to imagine that he doesn't know how these interviews are received. He doesn't know that they will generate headlines around the world and so on. He keeps going back and doing these interviews. He's not being somehow duped by this journalist. And so, if you're taking his action seriously, you have to assume that he basically wants to open up a conversation around hell as he's wanted to open up conversations around divorce and remarriage and intercommunion with Protestants and a host of other, of other fraud issues. And yeah. he's using this method because were he to sort of make a formal papal statement, it would create a theological crisis. So that's, yeah. That's the fascinating, no, I, you know, I it, get it. it's ambiguity as a, yeah. as, a, as a papal strategy, and it's a striking thing to watch. Yeah, the overarching uh, strategy in this conversation for me is to help uh, evangelical Christians to understand that what we are now observing in the Roman Catholic Church, and particularly in the person of uh, Pope Francis, is a strategy that isn't unique to him, uh, nor to, uh, to those who are hoping for uh, doctrinal and moral change in the Roman Catholic Church. It's, it's very much a part of the theological air we breathe if we are not careful. But uh, I've been closely following uh, the papacy for all of my adult life. I, I did part of my graduate work in a Roman Catholic institution, part of my doctoral work, because I wanted to understand uh, Roman Catholic theological method. The issue of authority has always loomed hugely uh, over all of my uh, theological life. And uh, so I, I've watched three popes uh, at work here. And I, 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 uh, pope Paul VI, uh, I, I was basically a boy when he was pope. But since then, I've been watching uh, John Paul II and, uh, and Benedict XVI and now, and now Francis. And uh, as, as a Protestant, the shorthand that I would offer is that, uh, that Pope John Paul II was not primarily a theologian but a philosopher and was primarily— um, uh, directing his attention towards the great threats to the church represented by Marxism and communism, and uh, who, uh, who helped to develop uh, what had been underdeveloped in Catholic theology as a theology of the body over against the sexual revolution. Then comes uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, who was uh, such a careful theologian. And uh, you could never imagine, at least I really can't, uh, later Pope Benedict XVI, making casual statements. He wasn't a casual person. Right. There's nothing casual. He was too German to be casual. Yes, exactly, exactly. The, uh, the, 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 the former Cardinal Archbishop of Munich is not a man likely to make uh, theological uh, mistakes. 
uh, from his own perspective and worldview, he'd be very careful. But then along comes Francis, and Francis is like uh, – well, I will tell you, anyone who knows uh, uh, Protestant uh, 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 religious leaders will understand exactly the type, more grandfather than theologian, and I mean, a lot of winks and nods. But in this particular issue that I raised from the beginning, uh, the uh, interviews with Eugenio Scalfari – the, the thing is, you might think that someone does this once out of innocence or naivete, but this is the third time that, uh, that these winks and nods have led to uh, open accusations or, or, or uh, reportage uh, by this, uh, uh, this journalist that the Pope is basically changing Roman Catholic doctrine. It's, it's implausible to think that he would continue having these conversations if he didn't basically want the kind of reports that are coming out. Yeah, I, th- I think that that's right. And I mean, that doesn't mean that Francis has a definite, you know, a sort of definite, in Catholic terms, heretical view on these questions. And, you know, people, sort of when these things come out, people sort of defending Francis will say, oh, but look, he said thoroughly orthodox things about hell in all these other cases in public and so on. So I, I don't look at Francis and see, you know, in, in that case or, or others, someone who has a sort of definite system that, you know, that he wants to take right. the Catholic theological system and sort of turn it in a particular direction. He sees himself as a pastoral figure who, you know, is sort of trying to deal with the world as it actually exists, the post-sexual revolution landscape, and that, in his view, requires changing pastoral methods in ways that, you know, may endanger doctrine, but he thinks it can be done. And then he sees himself as more broadly sort of opening up opening up conversations that the you know that were sort of open somewhat in the 60s and 70s in Catholicism and then the theory was among conservative Catholics that sort of John Paul II and Benedict together the theologian and the philosopher had sort of developed an interpretation that sort of settled a lot of these issues and Francis thinks otherwise I mean I, I think yeah. that's that's certainly clear without having a sort of definite place that he wants to take the church, he thinks that sort of there was too much, um, you know, what he likes to call rigidity, um, too much sort of pharisaical doctrinal obsessiveness under the last two popes, and the time has come to sort of open things up more. So introducing the issue this way, I want to, uh, to, to perhaps too quickly, get to a set of questions that, uh, that I can't wait to ask you. But before that, I want to back up. And uh, because you do in your book start out uh, by rehearsing the modern papacy. And, and, uh, and so I want to speak to you as an evangelical Protestant theologian to a, to, to a Catholic intellectual. Non, non-theologian. <laughs> no, but intellectual and, uh, and keen observer of the Church. I, and I want to tell you, your, your book, I, I, I enjoy everything you write. You're such a careful and incisive writer, but, but you are particularly careful, meticulous in the way you write. And, uh, and so I know exactly, I think, what you're trying to do and, and quite successfully in this book. But, but I want to begin where you begin. So, so talk about why the papacy? And realize you're, you're talking to an evangelical Protestant, but I want to gi- I want you to give the argument in full force. Wh- wh- why have a pope? And if you have a pope, what's a pope supposed to do? I mean, there are a lot of ways I could, a lot of directions I could take that. Um, but one one sort of Protestant friendly way to look at it is that you want to have a pope because the Bible says you should. <laughs> right? I mean, the the Catholic theory of the case is that when 
Um, you know, when Jesus tells Peter that he's the rock and he's building the church on him and the gates of hell will not prevail and all sorts of things like that, that that is literally the founding of the papacy and that the papacy exists to, in certain ways, do precisely the thing that Protestants believe the, the church in general needs to do, which is maintain the church's fidelity to the revelation of God in Scripture and the revelation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And that the, the point of the papacy is, in a sense, that it has a kind of negative power. It can, you know, sort of at times, and this is obviously where there's lots of Protestant Catholic disagreement, sort of distill or clarify things that were not sort of literally stated in the pages of uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this is why the Church thinks that you know, the Pope has the power to sort of define certain dogmas and doctrines around the Virgin Mary, for instance, that Protestants tend to reject. Um, but the most important power is, is, to, is to maintain and hand on rather than to innovate. And the case for Catholicism in certain ways, and the one that, I mean, I'll just say that I found persuasive when I became a Catholic as admittedly a teenager, not the most theologically-minded time of one's life, um, was that on a lot of questions, the Church had a strong claim to be, in certain ways, a better biblical literalist than, than its Protestant critics. Um, and one of those areas is the one that has become so vexed within the Church under Francis, which is the issue of divorce and, divorce and remarriage, where the Church yes. has insisted, almost alone now among Christian mm-hmm. churches, what Jesus says um, in Mark about marriage really holds, and that the you know that the exceptions that Protestants have discerned, and obviously the language varies with the Gospels, and Protestants have a scriptural case as well for exceptions. But the Catholic case is that you know that Jesus is saying something that's extraordinary and hard, and that's why his disciples freak out and say, "Well, it's, maybe it's better not to be married at all if you can't get divorced." And the Church has, across hundreds and thousands of years, held to that, even as other churches, including our brethren in Eastern Orthodoxy, have drifted from it. So that's, yeah. that's an attempt at, at the sort of a, a maybe idiosyncratic, but, 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 but a, a case, a sort of Protestant-friendly case for why for, for the purpose of the Pope. All right, so I'm just letting all that rest for a moment, but let, let, me just, <laughs> let me just continue what I would see as the Catholic argument here. Uh, and uh, again, I, I, I've been studying these things for years, which is what makes the current situation all the more interesting. So the papacy is supposed to be the, the unity of the Church represented in this one the theological monarch, uh, really. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, he, he is—the magisterium basically serves as an extension of the papacy, so it is the papacy itself that, above all, represents the unity of the Church and the, the responsibility to protect the faith as it is held by the Church. And, uh, and when you talked about uh, ongoing revelation, is what I would call it, uh, in, in, in the development of doctrine, which is the, one of the huge questions anyone, any theologian has to face, including evangelicals, even though many of them don't want to think about it— the development of doctrine is a very important question, but the historic claim of the Catholic Church that continues in the current catechism is that the papacy can only develop doctrine consistent with 
a, a, a trajectory. It, it, he cannot correct doctrine. He can't say the church was ever wrong. Uh, the, the, the church right. never admits that it changes a doctrine, only that it is developing doctrine consistent with the original deposit of revelation. That's almost from the catechism, I think. Yes, that's, that's right. And the, with, and the gray area being that the church will say that, you know, popes themselves in their personal speculations can get things wrong, and the church can sort of entertain hypotheses that are not codified as doctrine that it can later reject with a recent example being, for instance, the concept of, of limbo, right? This idea that, you know, the souls of the, of, for instance, unbaptized infants go neither to heaven nor to hell, um, but to a state of beatitude sort of short of the, the short of the fullness of um, the kingdom of God. This was sort of a, this was a, a theological theory that a lot of Catholic theologians held. It informs, you know, medieval and early modern Catholic thinking, and at a certain point, the Church seemed to abandon it. And there are other examples like this. And so the argument is that basically, if once the Church codifies something and says this is doctrine, it can't change. But there is room for theological speculation in areas where doctrine has not yet been codified. That then applies, you know, to something, a case like marriage, the issue of the Francis era, right, where the Church doesn't say that marriage is a sacrament officially until, you know, it sort of starts in the early, early Middle Ages, basically. So the Church in 400 AD doesn't explicitly list marriage as one of the seven sacraments. At a certain point in the early Middle Ages, it starts to do that. But then at that point, it can't undo that idea, right? It can sort of have, there's a, there can be a period where you can speculate and argue about whether marriage is a sacrament, and then once the Church sort of rules and instantiates that, then that can't be wrong. The Church can't reverse course. I I understand that claim. I think it's really important for us all to understand it, because that sets up, then, uh, the very problem your book addresses. So let's set the cultural problem out there. So if you look at Protestantism, uh, the way Protestants deal with this radical theological range uh, this this huge polarization between liberals and conservatives, uh, and I'll just use the easiest terms to grab a hold of here. Yep. The way Protestantism deals with that is you have different denominations. You got mainline Protestant denominations. They just join the uh, the culture. They 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 redefine doctrine. They abandon supernatural claims. They uh, they, they 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 abandon hell. Uh, did so very early, as a matter of fact, and uh, and just keep redefining doctrines. They can join the LGBTQ revolution, celebrate it, and move on. Meanwhile, you have conservative, traditional, more evangelical, either confessional Protestant denominations and evangelical churches. Uh, and, and, and so the thing is, they're not all under one hierarchy and, right. uh, and in one organizational structure. Catholicism, have, by its very nature, by its very name, uh, taking the word Catholic, uh, the Pope is supposed to be the sign of unity over an entire church where in much of Europe and in North America, it's trending along the lines of the Protestant liberals, whereas where it's growing in the church, uh, especially in the global south, it's growing where there is not going to be any joining of the uh, of the moral and sexual revolution, and there is no openness to theological liberalism. And so the papacy, which is supposed to be the unity of the church, is, is in an excruciating position right now in a church that claims to be universal and, and, and Catholic, and thus all-encompassing. And so here's Francis 
and and Francis, as you begin your book, is 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 sending signals that are intended to keep both of those wings, so to speak, of Catholicism in the same church somehow. Right, and I think it's useful to think of this. There's been sort of a two-stage, which now under Francis may be three-stage process in how the Catholic hierarchy has tried to deal with this big sort of liberal theology versus conservative theology split. And stage one was basically up until the Second Vatican Council. The church basically tried to suppress liberal theology. Um, You know, in Catholic terms, it was described as modernism, which fits with sort of modernist fundamentalist divide, and Protestantism in certain ways, and not, you know, not perfectly, but there's, there's sort of obvious overlap in various ways. And the papacy had people take an oath against modernism, it condemned modernist propositions in the 19th century, and in such a sweeping way that it enfolded, you know, basically much of liberal democracy into modernism as well. So that was stage one. Then stage two is the, the, the Second Vatican Council and afterward, the church does two things. First, it sort of says, it sort of separates liberal politics from liberal theology. And it says that the church can accept, and by liberal, I don't mean the Democrats. I mean, sort of, you know, absolutely democratic self-government, liberal, liberal, modern, Western, in the sense that all liberty. modern Western. Yes, exactly. So the church says sort of the politics of liberty are acceptable, um, but we still um, we, are, we are not embracing theological liberalism. But even as it does that, it essentially tacitly tolerates it. Right. It, it basically it doesn't. You know, John Paul II and Benedict, they might discipline an occasional theologian. Um, you know, they might attempt to rein in um, certain errors, but they also accepted that Catholicism was going to have an official teaching, and then a big part of the Church in the West was dissenting from it, not explicitly, but tacitly. So that was sort of phase two. Phase three, which, with Francis, at least at the moment, seems like a shift towards a more Anglican model. With, you know, Anglicanism famously, you know, long before the modern conflicts, it tried to deal with theological controversy by saying, we don't have a theological position. You can be a low church Anglican, you can be a high church Anglican, you can be an evangelical Anglican, you can be an Anglo-Catholic Anglican, and, you know, we're a middle way between Rome and Protestantism, uh, and we're also a middle way between other things as well. And so Francis is effectively, he's suggesting that you can decentralize doctrine a bit. You can have the German bishops go one way and the Polish bishops go another. And by sort of moving the papacy towards a more ambiguous mode of teaching, he's implying that, you know, that different, different contending positions on questions that the last two popes had suggested would, were settled were, were sort of acceptably Catholic. So it's, it's a turn of the ratchet from, you know, we've gone from sort of tolerance of dissent to a kind of diminution, potentially, of Rome as the guarantor of orthodoxy, or a sort of a narrower definition of orthodoxy, where the Nicene Creed is orthodoxy, but what the Church has said about sex and marriage and maybe some, you know, some other issues as well isn't. Yeah, that's, not, that's not just maybe some other issues. Yeah, as, as, you, as you well know, and even into getting the book, it's, it, it's not just maybe some other issues. It's certainly uh, some other well, issues. Well, right. No, no. I mean, I, I, think, I think, and, you know, you know this better than I from intra-Protestant debates, but this, the sexual stuff is 
that's, you know, the culture war is sort of where the battles burn hottest. But the, the theological underpinnings Absolutely. go very, very deep. And that's Absolutely. why, and you, you know, you see this in, I have examples in, in the book, but in Francis-era arguments, you start out having an argument between Catholics over marriage and divorce, and by the end you're having an argument about Christology, right? About, you know, who is, who is Jesus and why should we trust him? There is simply no way to deny nor to avoid the fact that any people or any group representing theological conviction will be considered widely out of step with the modern world. The modern world is itself resistant to theological conviction or even to theological assertion, not to mention theological judgment. Therefore, the people whose business it is to make theological judgment, they find themselves we find ourselves in a very interesting predicament in the context of late modernity. That's what makes this conversation all the more interesting and urgent. Uh, so, uh, so many questions just at this stage, and, and some of them come up even since you published your book so recently. So, Part of it is is Francis. I think it's a brilliant insight on your part that what he's looking at is kind of an Anglican model, and and we can understand that where you kind of let local theology uh, rule, and so you have a church that is unified in some sense, but uh, but you hold you have people who hold contradictory theologies and contradictory moral judgments, but you say let the local situation rule. Couple couple of yep. quick observations on this. The first is why would anyone adopt a model that has already just even pragmatically shown itself to be so disastrous? I mean, the Anglican communion would appear to be the last place anyone would look for a wonderful example of how to preserve the unity of the church. Uh, they're not even certain that the Anglican communion can hold together. Uh, and so that that's the first question. And the second question is like unto it, uh, and, and that is— uh, <laughs> What other option might there be if you're going to claim to, to, to be a kind of a global universal church holding everyone together? You may have noted that just a few days ago, the, uh, the, the Council of Bishops of the United Methodist Church officially proposed their own Anglican option on the LGBTQ issues, uh, saying yep. explicitly that uh, North American churches could move in more liberal directions, removing clear language prohibiting uh, LGBT uh, uh, ministers and, uh, and, and all that follows from it. Meanwhile, they even mentioned Africa, saying in Africa uh, they could maintain those very same prohibitions. It, it just it, it, it puzzles me, but does not surprise me. But it makes well, me right, wonder why it's, Catholicism it's, would do so. It's, well, I mean, I think it's, you know, the, the attraction of that model is obvious. Because if, you know, you have these seemingly, you know, these seemingly contradictory and insuperable divisions, but then you have, I think, a very you know, understandable and natural desire for Christian unity, a desire to hold your your part of the body of Christ together. And the Anglican compromise is attractive even if it has not succeeded in holding together for, you know, North North it's America. A, it's attractive North even America though it's failed. And yeah. Africa. Yeah. But it, but I think it's also for Catholics, I think there is I mean there are a couple other things going on, right? One is that I think there is an assumption shared by both liberal and conservative Catholics, that Catholicism is different from Anglicanism, right? And that there, that the fact, you know, there's sort of a faith in the papacy that's on both sides of, the, of this debate, yes. where, you know, this is something I've 
run into as, you know, I spent a fair amount of time as a Protestant in my youth, and maybe I'm overly influenced by those experiences. But I will say to my fellow Catholics, you know, there are real dangers of schism down this sort of devolutionary, Germans go one way, Africans go another road, and people will say, oh, schism is what Protestants do, right? Um, And the fact is that, of course, the reason you had a Reformation is because schism is what Catholics did then. But, you know, but, but that's, I think, you know, we've had sort of, it's been many centuries since Catholicism has broken in a serious way. And people think, I think, that it is, it is harder to imagine that happening than it would be um, in the Anglican communion. And part of that, too, is I think there's an assumption among liberalizers that unlike in Protestantism, the theology of conservative Catholics means that they don't have anywhere else to go. Okay, more right? on that. If, yeah, hold that for just a moment, because that, that, that's another place we have to go. But uh, let, let me just, uh, d- just point out that if you do go back to the 16th century, uh, part of the reason why the church did not hold together then, th- that is, when we say the church, we mean all those who are claiming to be the continuation right. of the church. The reason it didn't hold together then was because the issues are so basic that uh, one side could not avoid anathematizing the other. So it, it's not just that we disagree. It's not just that we disagree a whole lot. It's not just that we're going to disagree for a long time. It's that we each believe the other to be in revolt against the truth and uh, to have rejected the true deposit of revelation and, uh, and, and to no longer be a church or not to be a true church. Now, that is what we're seeing in Anglicanism. And, uh, and, and so you can go to the, uh, the, Anglic- the African archbishops in the Anglican Communion. They are, they are right on the verge, if they haven't gone over, of calling the Episcopal Church uh, in the USA apostate and anathematizing it. And, and, and so that's, that's one thing to see. You're going to see the same thing. Uh, basically, between Protestant and uh, liberals and conservatives, but I, I understand there's something else that holds the Roman Catholic Church together, and that's a sacramental unity, and and that's what's missing in many ways from uh, from all this because the Pope, it is claimed, is holding the keys that actually yep. make the distinction between heaven and hell. The the uh, the, the Archbishop of Canterbury, for all of his glory and power in the Anglican Communion holds no such authority. That's the game changer. He's not the head of his own church. Yeah, 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 as a matter of fact. The irony of Anglicanism is (laughs) that the head of the global Anglican communion is technically subordinate to Elizabeth II. He gets only Um, to dress like a monarch. He isn't actually a monarch. Right, and that's, yeah, and and that's sort of, I mean, I I think the the other dynamic, too, is that Catholicism is so big you know, there are more than a billion Catholics. And it's, you know, there's a lot of, obviously, intensity in the faith, but there's also a lot, I think, more than in some smaller Protestant denominations, there's, you know, there's a lot more cultural Catholicism than there is sometimes cultural Protestantism. And there's a lot more sort of, I think there's, there's, there's a sense in Catholicism that, you know, there are enough Catholics who are sort of somewhat, in, you know, somewhat indifferent to these high-level high theological debates. Right. You know, again, this is true in Protestant churches as well. But, but the, a whole lot more in Catholicism, given its sacramental life. Uh, the, the average Catholic can ignore most of this. Right. The average Catholic view is that, you know, it's supposed to be that, you know, I mean, the, the, point, the point of the hierarchy is to, you know, let me go to confession and 
and you know celebrate the Eucharist and and so on that it, it has a sacramental role, um, but that sort of the yeah you're you're supposed to you sort of you're you're not there's a saying that like you know you don't want to be in the engine room of the bark of Saint Peter the ship of Saint Peter right that sort of you know Rome is always a little corrupt and they're always having arguments and so on and the church is sort of sustained in spite of that and I think when you talk to Catholics about what's happening under Francis, you'll get a lot of that reaction. People saying, well, you know, the church has been around a long time. We've had a lot of these elite level fights, and it's hard for me to believe that this one on, you know, sort of esoteric seeming points about the distinction between an annulment and a divorce and so on. It's hard for people to say that that, that that is going to, that that is going to lead to a split, um, which it might not. But it's, but it's a strange gamble. I mean, I also think one other thing that's going on, right, is this is where the, sort of the geographic diversity of Catholicism matters. The, the dynamic in the church, in part, is being driven by the fact that Francis is a Latin American. You know, he was Jorge Bergoglio, the Archbishop of Buenos Aires. And Latin America doesn't have a Protestant mainline, right? It has Pentecostalists and Evangelicals, and it has an established Catholic church but it doesn't have the equivalent either of mainline Protestantism in the U.S. or the established Lutheran churches of Scandinavia or something. And so I don't, I don't get the sense that Latin American Catholics are sort of aware of what happened to mainline Protestantism. That experience isn't as present and palpable for Latin American Catholics, also for Italian Catholics, you know, Catholics from countries where there aren't Lutherans and Presbyterians and Episcopalians. Um, no, that makes and sense. I think that is, yeah. And that's part of why, you know, to your question you about, well, why can't they see what happened to Anglicanism or to the Methodists or whoever in the U.S.? I think, you know, it's not, it's, they're aware of it from a distance, but it's not part of their cultural experience. I want to uh, get to move to three or four just giant issues before we run out of time. But uh, <laughs> j- just in recent days, uh, in one day, Uh, Early in the day, I preached commencement at Geneva College. The name's just perfect for the point I'm going to make. And and there you have a college historically grounded in confessional uh, reformed uh, thought and uh, and living that out in western Pennsylvania. Had a wonderful time being there. And uh, in order to get home, it it was just easier to drive back to Louisville. And that gave me the benefit of being able to make a stop I wanted to make, which was at Steubenville, Ohio, at Mm -hmm. the Franciscan University there. Okay, so... Uh, just an, as an observer, uh, I mean that that's a school that turns out about half of all the the uh, the, the theology uh, graduates in the Roman Catholic institutions in North America. I mean it's 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 a massive school, uh, traditionalist Roman Catholic, uh, filled with young people compared to many other institutions in the Catholic Church that are not drawing Catholic young people, and uh, and so I wanted to go in the bookstore. And here's the quandary: in the bookstore, I found lots of books supporting the papacy, exactly what I would expect to find. I, I found uh, the, the uh, papal documents uh, all published. But isn't the quandary of a traditionalist Roman Catholic, such as that represented in the, in the old-line traditionalist Catholic situation, isn't it that the very office that they have, 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 have honored as the very symbol of unity in the church is now the, the office they fear uh, under Pope Francis? Um, I mean, if you have a pope, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna draw an even yeah. finer distinction for okay. you with apologies for the Catholic inside baseball. But what how I would describe Steubenville, Steubenville is 
sort of John Paul II conservatives and not yep. traditionalists. The traditionalists are the Catholics who think basically everything the church changed in the 60s was a mistake. And they think, you know, they, it, it's obviously they think the mass should still be in Latin and so on, but they think generally the sort of the partial liberalization of Vatican II was a mistake. And what's been interesting to me as someone who is not a traditionalist, I don't go to the Latin mass, I would have identified as a sort of some kind of conservative John Paul II Catholic, is that the traditionalists know exactly what to say about the Francis era. They have a whole theory. They think, yes, the church, the church has been adrift since the 60s, and what we're seeing under Francis is just the ultimate expression of that. And the Holy Spirit is going to preserve him from formally teaching heresy, but it's allowing the church to fall into a kind of tacit heresy. And ultimately, the church needs to essentially reclaim its pre-Vatican II heritage. And it's the conservatives, the ones who basically said, you know, we're okay with modernity up till 1965 or so, who are sort of baffled and at sea in exactly the way you describe. And a big dynamic that Francis has accelerated is younger intellectual Catholics, and this is a small group, but potentially a very influential one, are becoming more traditionalist, I would say, in part in, in, part in reaction to the broader culture. Yeah, that makes perfect that, like, sense. Yeah. But that's, that's sort of, a, but I think you're right. I think the sort of the Steubenville, John Paul II Catholicism hasn't figured out how to deal with the Francis era. And in that sense, it's the John Paul II synthesis, which was sort of what I found when I came into the church, that it's having, a, it's having an intellectual crisis. It doesn't know what to make of what, what Francis is doing. And the traditionalists are ready with a more coherent synthesis, but it's also one that requires, you know, essentially arguing that, that most of what's happened in the church since before I was born um, has been a mistake. Yes, and, and the more liberalizing uh, folks in uh, the Catholic hierarchy, especially uh, the bishops, uh, have been moving, especially since Vatican II, into a model of a more collegial and conciliar Catholicism, uh, which had been more or less at the expense of the papacy, uh, or at least with the tacit uh, with, with the tacit uh, corrective ability to the to the papacy, and in particular, uh, papal teachings that cannot be reversed but are now not very popular in the church. But uh, but with Francis, it, it appears that, uh, that that with a pope who is likely to be uh, self consciously a reformer, and and yep. you don't you deal with that very very well, very carefully. Uh, not a revolutionary, but a reformer. Uh, the question is what that really will mean for Catholicism. By the time you end the book, you say that there, there are likely two alternatives: either. He is successful in the in the span of historical perspective, and he's a hero, or he turns out to be a heretic. Those are two very uh, polarizing words, hero or heretic, but that's actually how you end the book. Yeah, it's kind of a strong ending, I guess. Um, and I think a lot, I mean, a lot of people would just obviously disagree with me on that. And they, they would say, I think there are a lot of conservative Catholics who would say, you know, because Francis has seem to sort of allow room for erroneous or even heretical teachings ambiguously, we can simply, you know, elect a more conservative pope who can reinterpret what Francis said, you know, in the light of what John Paul II said, and the church can sort of move forward from there. And my skepticism about that 
is is partially because I think what Francis has shown is something that conservative Catholics didn't really grasp, which is that liberal Catholicism is resilient. It it has you know Clearly. it has all of the sort of secular institutions on its side. It has a very natural appeal to people who are, you know, sincere and serious Christians, better Christians than I am in many cases, who just want the church to sort of fit with the times a little better. And as long as that's the case, the legacy of Francis is going to be invoked and invoked and invoked as sort of a blueprint for how liberal Catholicism can change the church. And at a certain point, I don't think it's going to come, they're not coming in my lifetime, but at a certain point, it may be another, another ecumenical council like Vatican II, um, but at a certain point, the church is going to have to, to have to sort of make a decision and sort of formally say whether or not these kind of changes are acceptable. And that, you know, that, and, and it's at that point that you either, you know, you don't have to call him a heretic exactly, but you have to either say we are sort of rejecting things that Francis did, or you have to say, the conservatives were wrong about how the church can change, and now it's changed in these ways, and that's the explicit teaching. And I don't think the sort of decentralized Anglican model gets you out of that, because the reality is the, the papacy is where the power is in the church. So you can decentralize for a generation or something, but those powers don't go away. And everybody ultimately is going to be, in, to put it in very crude secular terms, competing for control of the papacy. So as long as, and that's different from the Protestant situation, I think. That's, a, that's just the big difference. The papacy is, will always have these powers. Yeah, well, it, it, it's different, but, uh, but the temptations are, are, are very similar. Right, and the theological lines of battle are very similar. Yeah, let, me, let me give you a contrary argument as an outsider, uh, admittedly. So capital P Protestant speaking here. Uh, when I look at the history of the papacy, say, over the last 150 years, and by the way, I love your, your line in here, you know, that there seems to be something of a, a, a pendulum in the church. I think you say after a fat pope, people want a thin pope. Uh, that's the line, yeah, yeah that's I, what I, people okay. in Rome always say. Yeah, I get that, I get that. But let me just say that if I were a liberal, I would feel pretty good about the long-term picture. Why? Because when I go back to the middle of the 19th century and look at Pope Pius IX, and uh, I look at his language and his understanding of, of Catholicism, and even if I then fast forward to Benedict XVI, Benedict looks incredibly liberal uh, yep. compared to, uh, to, to Pius IX. And so even, even thin popes are fatter than they look. Uh, <laughs> if I'm a liberal, I feel, pretty good about, yeah, I feel pretty good about the long term trajectory here. Yes, I, I think that that's a reasonable, that's a totally reasonable argument. And it's one reason, I mean, even though I'm a critic of Francis and a conservative and everything else, I try in the book to sort of entertain scenarios where I'm, where I'm wrong, right? And, and liberal Catholicism, in some sense, simply triumphs. Um, but I think, you know, the the problem with that is, is this, and this is where it is very similar to the situation in Protestantism, the problem with that theory is that we just don't, we don't have a model of post-60s theological liberalization that has been really institutionally successful. And across, you know, across denominations, um, you Absolutely. have sort of, 
you, you, I mean, you have examples of, you know, you can say, you know, sort of some forms of megachurch Protestantism that have no doctrines have been successful, but that's not really a model that works for confessional and liturgical churches. For confessional and liturgical churches, there just isn't evidence that sort of, that there, you can sort of build a really resilient and sort of effective Christian communion on the basis of, of liberal theology. And that, you know, that, that may change. And this is where, you know, the France, that the idea that sort of there's a Francis effect and so on, and that he's sort of showing how this model works is very, it's very powerful. But, you know, the baseline, the baseline data remains that, you know, the most, the, the people whose kids are most likely to stay Catholic are conservative and traditionalist Catholic. People who are likely to go into the priesthood are conservative and traditionalist Catholics. And you see this in Francis himself, this sense, I write a bit about this in the book, that he's sort of part of an older revolutionary or reforming group pitted against younger conservatives and younger traditionalists. And in that sense, the liberalizers, even as in a way they agree with you and they say the winds at our back, you know, this will just be Vatican II all over again. They also have, I think, sort of conscious or subconscious doubts when they look ahead 40 or 50 years. Like, what is the future? Like, German Catholicism, I would say, by the end of this pontificate, will just will be sort of effectively, and I, I don't mean this as a slur, Protestantized, yes. right? That yes. uh, in, in a sort of, you know, mainline Lutheranish. That's even kind caught of the way. attention It'll... of the Wall Street Journal. So, I mean, I mean that, that, oh, yeah. that, well, that development's not just of interest to, uh, to Catholics. No, and it has, it, it, I mean, all of this has big implications for Protestants. But the, so the, but the German church will be at that sort of end point. And German church has no priests. Nobody goes to Mass. It's incredibly rich because it's funded by a, a, a tax. You know, it's sort of important to German society as a purveyor of social services. But if that is the end point for the liberalization project, if Germany is the end point, and right now that's what it is, that's the, that's the, that's the end point. Maybe there's a different one, but that's the end point we have then there are reasons for conservative Catholics to say, look, in the end, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to have a comeback because the exhaustion of the liberal yeah. tendency in the Church now that, is that, that is exactly inevitable. the point, though, about if, if the liberals can look at history and say, eventually we win, uh, then conservatives can look at the nursery and say, eventually we win. Uh, again, at the Franciscan University, it was filled with young students that are not at more liberal Catholic institutions, partly because of the way their parents and the students made choices, but also because the parents made choices to have babies. Uh, we, we, the, the, so right. you, you've got Protestant liberalism, and, uh, and also every sociological study I see shows that more liberal Catholics are also not having the kinds of children at the rates that uh, – that, that conservative right. Although they convert, they are. convert some of the, you know, the, the sure. conservatives don't hold all their kids. But they I mean, the the other, and the other, and the other thing is that the culture now is, let's say, things are a little more fraught yes. in the West than they were. Well, I mean, they got pretty fraught, obviously, in the late '60s and early '70s. Yes. But like at the time Vatican II opened, you know, it was the early '60s. There was a real argument that sort of, you know modern civilization, you just had the baby boom, it was, you know, in good demographic shape, there was all this optimism, it was space age, and so on. I mean, Vatican II is shot through with optimism about modernity. That's the theme of the Second Vatican Council. It's that we should have been, we were wrong to be pessimistic about modernity in the 19th century, and now we need to enter into dialogue with modernity and recognize all its good points. 
the Europe and America of the age of Donald Trump and, you know, Brexit and mass, mass migration and everything else, that modernity seems much more vulnerable. You know, I mean, the, the sexual revolution because looked very different in 1963 yeah. than it does in the age of sterility and, and Me Too. So I, I just think there are various ways, even as I recognize, you know, I recognize why liberals believe themselves to have history on their side. I think history might have other plans for all of us, not necessarily enjoyable plans either. No, exactly. I, I will tell you that I like the word fraught. Uh, every day I have fraught thoughts, I can tell you that. Uh, I live in the same world you live in. Uh, let me ask uh, about one other issue, and this this one's massive, and uh, perhaps I would think, uh, given uh, my own theological instincts, the most important issue I would want evangelicals to watch. Uh, in, uh, in in confessional Protestantism, uh, there is no distinction between the pastoral and the doctrinal. And, uh, and so the doctrine, the faith is to be confessed and is to be lived without, uh, w- without any division, uh, yep. uh, being able to say we can teach one thing and apply it differently. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church has always had more elasticity there uh, because of the sacramental nature of the ministry. Uh, there has always—I would tell you that, that as, an, as a Protestant, I would say the local option has always been there in the person of the bishop, but, but not explicitly as you see now. But now with Pope Francis, you have something that I've never seen before, and that is a pope openly uh, arguing, and, uh, and Amoris Laetitia in particular, that, uh, that priests can apply the doctrine in ways that are different in one case than in another on issues— to which the church has spoken clearly. That, that, that yep. to me, is something fundamentally new, and marriage and divorce are at the center of it. Yes. No, I, I, and I think that's right, although I think that, I mean, I, I think official Catholic teaching, um, even through the sort of tacit pastoral compromises since the 60s, has been quite close to what you describe as Protestant teaching, that, you know, the, the pastoral fulfills the doctrinal, the doctrinal shapes the pastoral. You can't you know, there may be, there may be, you know, there, there may be certain kinds of wiggle room, but that wiggle room has to be itself consonant with what the doctrine sets, right? Um, so, you know, if, if you can say, well, you know, we can think about culpabil- levels of culpability, right, in determining whether something is a mortal sin, but that doesn't change the fact that it's, it's a sin, right? So you're saying, okay, there are right. gradations of culpability and pastors handle each one differently and so on, but the, the goal is still for the person to cease committing the sin. And, yeah, and Francis, Francis has, again, it's sort of unclear how explicit it is, but it's clearly, clearly the theory is that this, that this is the solution, that, you know, that just as sort of the Anglican model is part of the solution to the problem of, you know, being Christian after the sexual revolution, the other part is that we're going to have our doctrines, and they're going to be on the books, and we're not changing them, so there's, there's not going to be a theological crisis, there's not going to be a schism, and meanwhile, we're going to say that pastoral practice is different. And yes. the deliberately provocative analogy that I use in the book is that this risks ending up being like, you know, how sort of Soviet communism ends up, where you say, you know, well, we're still Marxist-Leninist, <laughs> you know, we still have all these ideological principles, but in practice, we're liberalizing our economy and allowing private ownership and all these things. 
And that was, in Russia, a signal that Soviet communism was about to collapse. Now, the counter-argument is that in China, <laughs> right, they've done the same thing. They've said, hi, we're Marxist-Leninists. We have all these dogmas. And by the way, we're basically a capitalist country. And they're still going strong. So, you know, you can, e- even with that analogy, you could say, well, Catholicism can go on with this in the, you know, the same way that the Chinese communists have, have gone on. Um, but I don't see that as a design. That doesn't seem like a very Christian, like when I read the New Testament, I don't see that as sort of Jesus' model for, no. you know, for, 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 the, for the church. No, and even uh, e- even in the the current Chinese example, I talked about it extensively on the briefing uh, on the 200th uh, anniversary of, of Marx's birth. Uh, you had the Chinese government paying for this 18 foot tall statue of Marx in Trier uh, in Germany, and uh, you you had uh, President Xi going to Chinese universities saying, you know, Marx has proved to be right, while every action they take is in direct right. refutation of. Uh, of, of communist doctrine, but but everybody kind of knows it, and so long as everybody's is 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 apparently prospering in China, everybody's kind of happy. But I don't I don't think that's going to work in the in in the church situation, and uh, especially when you look at the fact that you've got folks in 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 Catholicism right now. I'm thinking well of Cardinal Casper uh, and others, Walter Casper from uh, from Germany, and others. They're going further than what the Pope has said explicitly, but. As I read what what they're working on in their in their own documents now widely disseminated in Catholicism, I'm not sure anybody's married, uh, which is supposed to be a sacrament of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and what what I yeah. mean by that is when when they're saying that pastorally, you can come to the conclusion that the people who got married didn't have a full consciousness of the meaning of marriage, therefore it was never a marriage in the beginning. What couple does have a full understanding of the meaning of marriage? When they, in other words, I, what I'm seeing now, at least as a Protestant observer, is that what's opened up is a back door that's so big it eats the front door. Yeah, no, no, I mean, that's, that's generally my view of that theory as well. It's sort of, you know, I think you can see in this, there's, there's this peril Right around that around the idea of the development of doctrine, which is that it encourages people to treat Catholicism as a kind of intellectual game, where it's like if we can come up with this very clever way of sort of bending church teaching to open that back door, we will. And you know, in the case of you know the case of the indissolubility of marriage, you start with the idea that not every marriage is valid. And then you just you sort of come up with reasons why almost every marriage is invalid, and then you can say, well, if they're invalid marriages, then they don't need divorces. They, you know, they were dissolved dissolved to begin with. But the end game is this implication that basically Christians are incapable of, re- of marriage, right? Or incapable of obedience. That is one of the most important points you make in your book. Uh, by the way, I want to quote you back to yourself. You're here, kind of summarizing that argument, the Roman Catholic Church, when you write. That behind this is the assumption, quote, for many of the divorced and remarried, the church's law is too hard to follow, the moral dilemma is too extreme, and therefore they cannot be considered to be seriously sinning and can receive communion in good conscience, end quote. Um, I mean, by the, by the time you end that argument, you are saying that it is impossible for ordinary Christians to be ordinarily faithful. Yes. in the I mean, I think what Casper and others would say is, there are particular aspects of modern life that make it impossible in particular areas. That's how they sort of try and confine it. So they wouldn't say, you know, it's impossible um, not to murder someone, but they would say 
since the sexual revolution, it's impossible for some people to follow the church's teaching on sexuality. But, I mean, that's just a very strange argument because, you know, I mean, again, it's like full consent. I mean, most marriages in various times and places have been arranged marriages. They've been entered into at a young age. They've happened in societies that were, you know, deeply sexist and, you know, treated women as second-class citizens and so on. Like, it's not clear to me. I mean, it's clear to me, just as someone who lives in the world, all the ways in which the sexual revolution, revolution has made Christian marriage harder to enter into and sustain. But it's not clear to me that in the medieval past, there weren't a different set of issues that made marriages no, absolutely. You know, full consent hard to enter into. And the theory... Well, the theory partly because there was no the, consent. Partly, I mean, the Catholic Church has right. argued for centuries that marriage existed where there was no consent at all. I mean, there was a tacit well, consent in the vows, but in other words, you had arranged marriages where right. the kind of self-conscious consent we're talking about here was not a part of the picture, nor did anyone claim that it was. Right. Or that, I mean, I think they would say there was self-conscious consent, but that you could have, you know, it didn't have to be a romantic, you know, it didn't have to be a romantic caring. Was it modern companionate marriage, for, for sure. To be, yeah. to, be, to be present, yeah. 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 Well, uh, just a, a, a couple of, of quick questions here as we come to the conclusion, and uh, one hard, one easy. Uh, the, uh, the hard question is this, at least I, I, I think it, it might not be immediately answerable, but, uh, but it's going to be fun to ask anyway. Uh, so you finished the book and you published it. That's the way it works. And uh, some time has passed, likely about a year since uh, you turned in that manuscript. So what would be the chapter you now wish you had written? We haven't really talked about this except in touching briefly on China, but the Pope's attempted, yeah. still ongoing opening to the government in Beijing that would try and sort of regularize the underground church in China, the underground Catholic church, by giving the communist government more power over the appointment of bishops. That's, Effective veto power. Right. That's. I mean, that's a big deal. It may not happen, but it's sort of the biggest agenda point of the last year or so of Francis's pontificate. And it fits in interesting ways, even though the theological issues aren't the same with some of these issues, because it's sort of the equivalent in China of the theory of accommodation in the West. In the Absolutely. West, it's, you know, we have to accommodate the sexual revolution. In China, it's, you know, for the church to grow, we have to accommodate to, to sort of political power. Um, so there are interesting, it's different, but there are interesting overlaps. And presumably in the paperback edition of the book, that's, that's sort of the bulk of new stuff. I think other things that have, have happened, as I said at the outset, have been sort of continuations of what I'm already talking about, sort of further ambiguities introduced and so on without it changing the basic drift of the pontificate. But China's, China's a potentially big deal. Yeah, it, it is a very big deal. And of course, the Chinese uh, Communist Party is making, it, uh, is making the issues all the more clear, even in the last week, by its uh, further crackdown. It's not as if it's trying to act friendly to the Catholic Church. No, no. What's, what's being demonstrated is that I mean, what I'm told is that there's sort of a division in the Chinese government between the foreign ministry, which wants to make a deal, and the religious affairs ministry, which doesn't. Um, But the view from Rome seems to be that they want this deal so much that they're just willing to sort of wait, even as China cracks down on Catholics and other Christians. Um, It's not clear what the Chinese could do that would make the Vatican back out at this point, which is not a good negotiating position to be in. I, I, I should say. The, the second question, I, I think, may be, be a bit easier. 
Uh, I'm incredibly thankful for uh, your contributions as a columnist at the New York Times. So I, I, in an unusual way, we get to uh, watch the unfolding of your mind. Uh, but uh, because we're looking at it a couple of times a week, hopefully, and uh, and, and more online. But the, the big question would be, uh, what's your next project? I, I, I know you well enough to know there's something else, a big question that's uh, that, that, that's very much on your mind. What, what are you working on next? Well, the, the project that I was actually under contract for before I got sidetracked into writing about the Holy Father uh, is a book about sort of decadence as a, not just cultural phenomenon, but as a sort of economic and political sociological phenomenon as a way to understand where the West as a civilization is right now, with the idea being being that we are sort of stagnant, that we aren't actually rushing headlong into the future, that we're sort of stuck. We have slow growth and we're sort of, we have technologies of simulation instead of technologies of exploration. And the question is, does this mean we're headed for a collapse or does it mean that we're sort of sustainably decadent and we could be sort of stuck in this kind of slightly brave new worldish society for a long time to come? Um, so that's, yeah. that's the main book project. I've also been ill for a while um, and I'm improving uh, and I might write about my illness at some point, but that's, that's a more personal project and, I'll have maybe the next the next time you have me on, I can tell you more about that. Well, we will certainly pray for your health, and uh, it's good to hear you in strong voice. Well, you're very kind. I'm I'm grateful, and yeah, I'm doing I'm doing well enough. So that's all you can ask for. Well, I uh, I want to thank you especially uh, for sharing your thoughts in this book, uh, and uh, for sharing your thoughts on this program. And uh, as always, uh, Ross Douthat, I thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being on. I had really been looking forward to this conversation with Ross Douthat. I've been watching his unfolding argument column by column in the New York Times. And quite honestly, as an evangelical Protestant theologian, I have been looking at the huge questions raised by the pontificate of Pope Francis understanding most urgently that these are not questions only about the future of Roman Catholicism. These are questions about the future of Christianity in the United States and around the world, and they are questions about the future of Protestantism, the future of evangelicalism. The issues that are addressed in this book are issues that strangely, oddly, and perhaps unexpectedly enough are present anywhere you find a people of conviction, of theological conviction, in the modern age, especially in what's being described intellectually as the late modern age. We are watching an increasing secularization in the culture that is coming with dramatic intellectual and theological consequences. The huge question becomes, how does any thinking individual, how does any Christian, how does any believer, how does any congregation or denomination or institution, how does any assemblage of congregations or people of conviction resist the seemingly inexorable pressures of the modern age. Pressures that are not only tempting, but apparently demanding that people of conviction abandon or revise virtually every conviction. So that leads to an interesting set of questions. Why the conversation with Ross Douthat? That's easy to answer. He is one of the most consequential and one of the most interesting public intellectuals in America today. Why talk to a Roman Catholic? Or for that matter, why talk to a convert to Roman Catholicism? 
who is writing about tensions within the Roman Catholic Church and the nature of Catholic identity. Well, it's because the very same issues addressed in this book about Catholicism are the issues and the temptations that are all too present within the Protestant world and even within evangelicalism. Why focus so much conversation on the papacy? Well, I think the reformers in the 16th century could answer that question quite well. The papacy becomes one of those non-avoidable questions, and the logic of the papacy leads to Roman Catholicism, and the logic of Catholicism leads to the logic of the papacy. The logic of Reformation doctrine, the logic of a Protestant understanding of the gospel, the logic of a Protestant understanding of the church makes the papacy not only untenable, but inconceivable. Every strength that Roman Catholicism claims for the papacy is understood to be a weakness from an evangelical perspective. That is to say that even as Ross Douthat pointed to Matthew chapter 16 and said that perhaps he could tempt an evangelical to see in Matthew's gospel, in Christ's words, the declaration of the papacy, it's that very move that leads Protestants, evangelicals in particular, to recoil and say, if you can find the papacy there, you can find anything anywhere. A part of the argument made in the 16th century and beyond about the papacy is that Protestantism would be fissiparious, it would factionalize, and it would fracture over and over again without the unity provided by the Pope and the magisterium of the Church. After all, according to official Roman Catholic teaching, it is the Pope aided by the magisterium, advised by the magisterium, who holds the keys, the very keys that the Roman Catholic Church claims were given to Peter, not to the Church, and then to a succession of popes from Peter onto the present. Now, again, if you go back to the 16th century, we need to remind ourselves that the Reformers insisted that there was no argument with the Roman Catholic Church over Christology or the doctrine of the Trinity. The argument was over how one even came to know doctrine and where doctrinal authority was to be found in the Church. The solas of the Reformation, not by accident, include sola scriptura, the authority of Scripture alone. But we can't understand why the Catholics then and now would argue that absent the Pope, there could be no enduring institutional unity of the Church. But that's what makes the argument so very interesting now. It becomes particularly interesting now with the Pope being Francis. Pope Francis is clearly understood to be a different character than the popes who came before him. There is speculation about just how revolutionary or reformist Pope Francis may be, but there is no question that intentionally and regularly, consistently, since he became Pope in 2013, Pope Francis has been at least insinuating or gesturing or openly arguing that the Church should change the way it deals with several pressing doctrinal and pastoral issues. Most importantly, the Pope has made two huge suggestions. One of them is what Ross Douthat refers to here as kind of the Anglican temptation, that Catholicism could find a way to allow Catholics in Germany and Catholics in Africa to operate by two different understandings of morality, even by two different pastoral applications of the Church's definition of marriage, a doctrine that it has defined not only as a teaching but as a sacrament, thus central to the faith. But the Pope has done something else. He has openly insinuated, and then he has gone on to articulate how there could be a formal distinction functionally between official church doctrine and teaching on the one hand and pastoral application on the other. Now, he's talking about marriage, but he has also made very clear he's talking about human sexuality, 
The issue of homosexuality in particular has become one of the contexts with which this pope has been associated. This is the pope who famously said on an early plane trip as pope, as he was speaking to the press, who am I to judge, speaking specifically about homosexuality. But at the same time, his church judges directly. It judges according to official teaching. It says that homosexuality and homosexual behaviors are intrinsically disordered. So the church is making a judgment, but what the Pope was modeling there was the idea that in a pastoral application, the church wouldn't change its doctrine, but merely apply it in an individual setting in a way that wouldn't be according to the direct words of the doctrine or of official church teaching, but would take other issues into consideration. Now, here's what's different from Protestant liberalism. Protestant liberalism said, you change the creed. If you look at so many of the liberal denominations, they have officially changed the creeds. They have adopted revisionist creeds that reflect a more liberal theology. The argument of Francis, it appears at present, is this. We won't change the creed. We won't change the catechism. We will never say that the church was wrong on these issues. We're not even going to admit that we changed the doctrine or the teaching. We're going to leave all the words in place, but we're going to empower priests and over the priest bishops to make pastoral decisions about exactly how these church teachings, even sacramental teachings, are to be applied in contexts of individual life. So I entered this conversation as a Protestant, clearly, confessionally Protestant. I entered this conversation understanding that the theological distance between me and Ross Douthat is absolutely massive, understanding that we actually hold contradictory understandings between the one and the other on questions of ecclesiology and questions of gospel, questions of justification, questions of revelation, questions of authority, questions of doctrine, even the question, where is the true church? But I also enter into this conversation with an incredible intellectual respect for Ross Douthat for being so honest and incisive in looking at this moment in Roman Catholicism, even as in a previous book, he looked at this moment in American religion and has seen things that we very much need to see. He has understood what's going on and has had the honesty and the courage to name it and the intellectual care and discipline to analyze it. It might be tempting to many evangelicals and confessional Protestants to say, we don't have anything to learn by looking at contemporary Catholicism. But I would argue that is wrong, because lived out before us right now is the Roman Catholic Church trying to deal with some of the same big questions, trying to do so consistent with its own claim as a church and its own understanding of revelation and doctrinal authority— One of the things that evangelicals have noted over the last several decades in particular is that the Roman Catholic Church has been steadfast on so many of the issues of current cultural concerns, such as the sanctity of life and such as the reality of marriage and the definition of marriage as always the union of a man and a woman and historic teachings on sexuality. We see Catholics, especially under Pope Francis, beginning to openly discuss what had not been openly discussed before. Could there be a way out of this by a local option? Could it be allowed that Catholics in Germany would be allowed to hold to a different doctrine and to a different sexual morality than Catholics in Africa? But just translate that into another question. Is it different as evangelicals and confessional Protestants to live faithful Christianity in Talladega, Alabama than in San Francisco, California? We can understand why there is a temptation to say you have to take the local context into consideration. Not only as you're thinking about certain modes of cultural communication, but even as you're thinking about issues of basic doctrine and morality.
But it's the second big move by this pope that should have an even closer attentiveness from evangelicals. This is where the pope is now openly arguing and then even more pervasively signaling that perhaps there could be a distinction between formal church teaching and pastoral application. That's a particular temptation that comes to the Roman Catholic Church for two reasons. One is their understanding of doctrinal development in the stewardship of the magisterium of the church, and the second is a sacramental ministry. This is where, at least in theory, Protestants would have an absolute defense against arguing that there could be any dichotomy or any conflict, any two-stage form of life with doctrine in one life and moral practice and pastoral application in another. But just consider how close this temptation will be to many evangelicals who will say, you know, we don't have to change what we say the Bible says. We don't have to deny what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 or in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We don't have to deny the orders of creation as revealed in the book of Genesis and as amplified throughout Scripture. We can continue to say that we believe all that officially, but when it comes to our own counseling and when it comes to our own preaching in the local church and when it comes especially to individual ministry, we can apply those truths in ways different than we had seen before. To put the matter bluntly, evangelical Protestants are going to find ourselves in the predicament of having some who say, we haven't changed the doctrine, we're just applying it differently. There are going to be some who will say, you can have peace with the entire moral and sexual revolution and still hold fast to a doctrine you claim is unchanging. The claim will be, we haven't changed the doctrine, we are just changing its application. It's very, very important that evangelicals watch that argument now in Catholicism and then watch out for it in our own circles. But as Ross Althett makes brilliantly and chillingly clear, it is quite possible to claim that you refute situation ethics in theory, only to turn around and apply situation ethics in practice. Many thanks to my guest, Ross Douthat, for thinking with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.